Chapter 1. The Epistemological Basis of the Christian Faith The Scriptures are God's revelation both of himself to man and of his will for man. They reveal therefore not merely the truth, what man is to believe concerning God, but also the command word of God, what duty God requires of man. Westminster Shorter Catechism, Question 3 The task of theology, therefore, is twofold. First, the theologian aims to understand and communicate effectively the truth of God's word, and, secondly, to apply the command word of God to the contemporary situation, thereby providing an intelligible basis for the practical outworking of the Christian faith. This definition of the theological task, this makes certain assumptions about the relation between Scripture and theology, namely, that the Scriptures are the essential and fundamental basis for our understanding of God and his works of creation and providence. In other words, for our understanding of all things, and thus that the Bible speaks with final authority on all matters with which it deals. If we abandon this conception of the theological task, we cut the essential tie between scripture and theology. This has been borne out by developments in modern Protestant theology, which has increasingly rejected the sola scriptura conception of theology in favour of a more deist or rationalistic approach. No mainstream Protestant denomination or group within those denominations has been unaffected by this modern trend. The result has been that the scriptures, as the source of ultimate truth, and even more so as the command word of God, have slipped into the background, and, in the case of the latter, have become almost totally neglected in many quarters, even as a basis for the teaching of ethics and personal morality. The essential tie between scripture and theology has gone, and it has gone because the epistemological basis upon which it was predicated has been abandoned. The purpose of this chapter is to examine the epistemological basis of the sola scriptura conception of the Christian faith in contrast to that of the non-believer's worldview, and then to provide a brief application of the Christian theory of knowledge to the philosophy of education. The necessity and importance of dealing with this subject today is occasioned by the fact that epistemology is the overriding preoccupation of modern philosophy, and, hence, it is only on the basis of a proper understanding of the subject that we are able to mount an apologetics for the Christian faith, which is both rationally consistent and, at the same time, faithful to Scripture. The Ultimate Locus of Rationality The Austrian economist and philosopher Ludwig von Mises said that facts do not speak for themselves. They are spoken about by a theory. This is a typically post-Kantian statement, and as thus cited, means that the facts of reality have no meaning or purpose until the creative mind of man orders those facts logically and thereby gives them meaning and purpose. In this perspective, the ultimate locus of rationality and intelligibility is man himself. Man is the measure of all things, beyond whom there is no higher authority. For the Christian, however, it is God's creative act which gives all the facts of reality their purpose and meaning. His word is the original creative word 
which brings into existence and orders all the facts of reality. Man is able to understand the world in which he lives because he too is a part of that rationally ordered creation, created in God's image, in knowledge, righteousness and holiness, with dominion over the creatures. What the non-believer asserts about the facts of reality, therefore, is based upon a particular theory of human knowledge, which assumes that the mind of man has the original creative power to define and order the raw data of reality which surround him without reference to any authority or interpretive principle. In other words, it is based on certain presuppositions about the nature of the world in which he lives, viz. that the world exists and can be understood independently of the God of Scripture. Likewise, what the Christian asserts about the facts of reality is based on a particular presupposition about the nature of reality, namely, that it is the creation ex nihilo of the God of Scripture. Thus, the Christian knows all things by faith. Hebrews 11.3 That is to say, he begins his thinking with an act of faith in the God of the Scriptures and thereby posits the veracity and sufficiency of divine revelation as the very foundation of his understanding of all things. In so doing, he insists that the only valid interpretation of the facts of reality is that given them by the Creator, and that this authoritative interpretation of reality has been set down by God himself in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. Thus, the Christian asserts that the only valid epistemology or theory of human knowledge is that which is based on God's revealed word. Hence, although we must reject outright the framework which gave rise to this dictum, viz. that facts do not speak for themselves but are spoken about by a theory, we must, however, at the same time, recognise that there is also an important truth in it. Indeed, this truth is for man the fundamental basis of epistemology. But for the humanist, it is the autonomous mind of man which makes sense of the facts of reality, which speaks the definitive word of truth about the realm of phenomena, whereas for the Christian, it is God who speaks the word of truth about reality. For the Christian, therefore, the ultimate locus of rationality and intelligibility is the God of the Scripture, and thus man, if he is to know anything truly, must, as God's creature, created in his image, think God's thoughts after him, to use the words of Cornelius Van Til. Moreover, the non-believer also, according to the Christian theory of knowledge, is only able to arrive at true knowledge to the same extent, though he is unaware that this is the case. To the extent that he denies this and refuses to think God's thoughts after him, his knowledge is false, since it is based on a theory which does not accord with the Creator's definitive and authoritative interpretation of the facts of reality. The classic example of this is, of course, Eve's assessment of the facts of reality in the Garden of Eden. Having assumed that she had the ability to arrive at ultimate truth concerning the nature of reality without reference to the authoritative word of God, she made a false assessment of the facts concerning the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It is this process of autonomous reasoning, that is, the rejection of God's definitive word as the foundation of all knowledge which led to the fall and which constitutes the essence of original sin. Some Problems with the Humanist View of Rationality The non-believer, as we have seen, starts his thinking with the premise 
that the world exists and can be understood independently of the God who created it and upholds it continually by the word of his power. He thereby posits an epistemology which he claims is neutral or objective, that is, based on the facts of reality rather than the facts being interpreted by a religious faith. This claim to neutrality is a myth. It is a myth because in making this basic assumption, the non-believer is being anything but neutral or objective. He is starting from a theory which, by its very nature, denies that the God of Scripture can exist and therefore denies implicitly the whole of the biblical religion. Thus, his interpretation of the facts of reality will inevitably deny that the universe is what the Christian insists that it is, viz. the handiwork of God. Given his basic starting point, the non-believer cannot logically come to any other conclusion. It might be objected here that, although the non-believer does not assume the existence of the God of Scripture at the outset, neither does he deny it, but simply leaves it open to question. Whether God exists or not would then be determined as a result of the application of autonomous rational principles. By his own rational abilities, man would thus work his way up to the knowledge of God. However, the God of such a natural theology could not be the God revealed in Scripture, but simply a God of man's own making, according to the religious fashions of the age. This is because the God of Scripture is the very foundation of all things, the source of all reason, and hence of man's own rationality. Thus, as already stated, if man is to know anything truly, he must think God's thoughts after him, for he is the one in terms of whom all things must be understood and measured, not the autonomous mind of man. To ask the question, does God exist, is to assert, at the very least, that possibility lies behind God. That is to say that the concept of possibility governs the existence of God. Such a God would not be the God spoken of in Scripture, for the God of Scripture is the source of all possibility. The Bible asserts that the God of whom it speaks cannot possibly not exist, and that all things depend for their existence upon him. The God of Scripture is thus the source of all truth. The God who determines what is and what is not, and thus the one who defines all things, including man, by his creative act. To assume the autonomous rationality of man is to deny the existence of such a God. For man to claim to determine for himself whether God exists or not is to make man the source of ultimate truth, the one who determines what is and what is not, and thus the one who defines God according to his own image. Any God predicated on such grounds cannot be the God of Scripture, but merely the projection of an idol onto Scripture. To question whether God exists or not is thus to deny the existence of the God of Scripture at the outset. This gives the lie to the rationalists' supposed neutrality. Modern man's so-called objectivity, or doctrine of neutrality, is, in fact, a universal negative religious presupposition concerning the nature of reality, which is held and defended by faith alone. For the assumption that the world exists and can be understood independently of the God of Scripture cannot be proved objectively any more than the existence of God can be proved objectively. It is a matter of faith. 
Thus, the idea that the conflict between humanism and Christianity is one of fact versus faith, which has been promoted so much by the scientific establishment in our day, is a lie. The conflict is, in truth, one of faith versus faith, for there are no brute facts in the universe. There are only interpreted facts, and in this interpretation of the facts of reality, the non-believer assumes the ability to know and understand, independently of God, a world which he believes exists independently of God. It is this presupposition which governs the non-believer's thinking, and hence his assessment of the facts in any and every sphere. He thus views the world around him, and all things in it, in terms of a theory which is pre-theoretical, that is, unproved, and by its very nature, unprovable. The non-believer, therefore, begins his thinking with an act of faith in his own presuppositions about the autonomous nature of reality, his own ability as an original creative thinker and knower of the world. In other words, he sees all things from a religious perspective, which requires faith as its foundation. Knowledge, Faith and Revelation This is evident if we consider that there are really only two ultimate positions with regard to the possession of knowledge. Namely, exhaustive knowledge or omniscience and complete ignorance. If I am to know anything truly, I must know everything exhaustively. Otherwise, what I do know, or rather what I think I know, may be affected by what I do not know, in a way and to an extent that I cannot know, and thus my knowledge is not knowledge in any proper sense, but merely speculation. If, as a finite being who lacks exhaustive knowledge, I am to know anything truly, it must be revealed to me by one who does know all things exhaustively. On the basis of this revelation, and to the extent that my reasoning is consistent with it, I am then able to go on and build up my knowledge and understanding of the universe which surrounds me. But my knowledge is necessarily based on faith in the validity of this revelation. This is so for the non-believer, and for those who consider themselves to be rationalists no less than for the Christian. All knowledge, scientific or otherwise, is based on revelation, that is to say on a given which is pre-theoretical and thus received by faith. Such givens are considered axiomatic and thus assumed without question. They form the basis of all further knowledge and are therefore not susceptible of rational proof, since to question their validity would be to question the possibility of knowledge. In other words, knowledge, science, hangs on faith, not faith on knowledge. The only alternative for finite human beings is total ignorance and scepticism. The non-believer accepts the rational nature of reality as a self-evident truth. But it is a self-evident truth to man only because he is himself created in the image of the one who brought this rational cosmos into being in the first place. The rational nature of reality is revealed in the creation. It is clear for all to see for that is how God created it. The non-believer accepts the validity of this revelation as a given, though he denies the one who made the revelation. 
His acceptance of it, however, is essentially a religious belief, that is, a view of reality which is received by faith. The non-believer further accepts, however, that the world exists and can be understood independently of the God of Scripture, and that his own rational faculties are sufficient to the task of understanding that world, and thus capable of giving order and meaning to the facts of reality in an original, creative way. These also are fundamentally religious beliefs, that is to say presuppositions, which govern the structure of the non-believer's worldview, and which are received by faith alone. To the extent that the non-believer is consistent with the former, that is, the rational nature of reality, he is able to know the universe around him. But, to the extent that he assumes the latter, that is, the autonomous nature of reality, his knowledge is corrupted, and thus false. It is the mutual exclusiveness of these basic presuppositions about the nature of reality which makes it impossible ultimately for the non-believer to construct a rationally consistent and meaningful worldview. The Circularity of Reasoning All reasoning is thus circular, in that it makes certain fundamental assumptions about the nature of reality which govern the process of reasoning. These presuppositions govern both the method used to assess the data of reality and the conclusions reached about this data, and the conclusions reached about this data, since it is in terms of the validity of these presuppositions that the process of reasoning takes place. This is so for the non-believer, no less than for the Christian. The worldview of the non-believer is thus based on faith, that is to say, on the assumed validity of the presuppositions which govern his understanding of the nature of reality. In other words, the non-believer makes certain assumptions about the world in which he lives, which function essentially as religious dogma, in terms of which further knowledge and understanding of the cosmos is sought. When he denies this to be so, and claims objectivity or neutrality, he thereby only shows himself to be ignorant of the epistemological basis of his own thinking. He is, in a word, deluded. Borrowed premises. However, this is not the only point at which the non-believer is deluded. Were he to be intellectually honest with himself, a rare thing indeed amongst the so-called scientific thinkers of our day, he would have to admit that he continually thinks and reasons in terms of totally inconsistent principles. He assumes the existence of a rationally ordered cosmos, or at least a cosmos which admits of being rationally ordered by the mind of man, which in the end comes to the same thing, since if the cosmos is not rationally ordered, it has no meaning and is therefore incapable of being rationally ordered. Indeed, in such a universe, there is no such thing as rationality. But he then attempts to construct a philosophy which is based on a concept diametrically opposed to this assumption, that is, the total chance evolution of the universe, which means that the whole cosmos, every fact and facet of reality, including man, and thus his rationality, are mere things unrelated to each other, mere happenings, the result of chance, without meaning in relation to the other chance happenings in the universe. In other words, the non-believer attempts to argue rationally about a universe which is by its own nature irrational and thus incapable of being understood, for there is no basis for its intelligibility. 
Van Til has described the non-believer's task as that of threading an infinite number of beads without holes onto an infinitely long string without beginning or end. But this is, in effect, precisely what the non-believer claims he has succeeded in doing, since he claims to be able to understand the world in which he lives. However, he is able to do so only to the extent that he is inconsistent with himself. In order to make any kind of sense of the universe, he has to assume working principles of rationality, law and intelligibility, which fundamentally contradict his belief that the universe is the product of chaos and chance. These assumed principles are, in fact, borrowed from an understanding of reality as it has been created by God. Thus, in his use of these principles, the non-believer testifies to his continual dependence upon a conception of reality, which presupposes that the cosmos is the creation of the God of Scripture. Of course, he denies this to be so, since to admit it would be to acknowledge God. He therefore suppresses the truth about God and continually attempts to deny the God-created nature of reality. Thus, the non-believer continually operates on borrowed premises. He has to accept the universe as God created it, viz. as a rational universe governed by law. This he is able to do, and that without being aware of it, because he is created in God's image, and thus possessed of a rational nature. But as a fallen creature he denies and suppresses the truth about God, and therefore attempts to explain the nature of reality in terms of a theory which presupposes the independent existence of the cosmos and the autonomous rationality of man. The result is an inconsistent epistemology which leads to many ad hoc theories about the origin of the universe and how it works. But because all of these theories and philosophies are logically inconsistent, they end in irrationality. Man cannot make sense of the universe without God. His attempts to do so are inconsistent with themselves because they are based on irreconcilable principles. Nevertheless, because man is God's creature, created in God's image so that he should think God's thoughts after him, in other words, because he is inconsistent and assumes a world of rationality, he is able to make sense of the world around him, to some extent. But he does so in spite of a denial of God and only to the extent that he accepts, albeit unwittingly, the God-created and God-revealed nature of reality, in other words, to the extent that he does think God's thoughts after him. Were he to be consistent with his denial of God, he would have to conclude that all things are meaningless, and that it is impossible to say anything intelligible about any fact or aspect of existence in the chance universe surrounding him. Indeed, in such a universe, the concept of intelligibility is a nonsense. To an extent, some schools of modern philosophy have worked out this truth more consistently than heretofore, and thus we have existentialism and nihilism. Having your cake and eating it The non-believer's general perspective, then, is distorted. Though he is capable of individual insights and truths, these insights and truths, however, cannot be related consistently to each other, nor to the unbiblical presuppositions governing his understanding of the universe. In particular, the non-believer desperately wants to keep hold of certain aspects of reality, especially qualities and facets of human personality, which he knows 
instinctively to be essential to his own humanity, but which he is unable to account for on the basis of his own philosophy. This has given rise to the dualistic systems of thought which have attempted to explain the nature of reality in terms of man's supposed autonomous rationality. For example, the form-matter scheme of the ancient Greek period and the nature-grace scheme of medieval scholasticism and the nature-freedom scheme of the Renaissance and Enlightenment period down to our own time. All such philosophies are simply an attempt to have one's cake and eat it because they are the product of an inconsistent epistemology. They are distorted and ultimately irrational. That is to say, they fail to produce a rationally consistent interpretation of the universe. The non-believer is thus out of touch with reality, though he is unaware of it, and hence intellectual schizophrenia, to use R.J. Rushduni's term, continually manifests itself in his thinking. The Christian View of Reality The Christian position, on the other hand, is consistent with its own presuppositions. That is to say, it makes for a rationally consistent interpretation of the facts of reality. It is not schizophrenic, but it is able to harmonize the whole cosmos in a unified worldview, which is based on self-consistent principles. The Christian, therefore, unlike the non-believer, truly believes in a universe, that is, a cosmos, which is a unified entity, because it finds its meaning and purpose in the creative act of the God of Scripture, and thus, which is intelligible and explicable in terms of his word alone. Moreover, it is only in terms of the Christian theory of knowledge that man is able to arrive at a consistent and unified understanding of reality. The non-believer may not like the God he finds at the centre of this Christian theory of knowledge, nor the nature of the worldview which it generates, but he cannot, if he is intellectually honest, deny its ultimate rationality. Of course the non-believer will never admit this, because he is a sinner, a rebel, at enmity with God. He cannot therefore accept that the nature of reality is God-centred. He would rather believe a lie than bow to the God of Scripture. Ethical depravity manifests itself in every area of his life, and hence in his understanding of every aspect and fact of reality. What has been said above is not meant to imply, however, that the Christian can never be wrong or does not make mistakes in his attempt to come to a proper understanding of the facts of reality. Obviously, the Christian does make mistakes and comes to incorrect conclusions about the world in which he lives. But he does this in spite of, not because of, his basic presuppositions about the God-created nature of reality. The difference between the believer and the non-believer is this. Given his basic presuppositions about the origin and nature of reality, it is impossible for the non-believer, in principle, to speak intelligibly about any fact in the universe, because he is inconsistent with his presuppositions, however, and assumes that the universe is rationally ordered. In other words, because he does his thinking in terms of pre-theoretical concepts, which are borrowed from the Christian understanding of reality, he is able to arrive at a correct understanding of many aspects of the world around him. But he cannot ultimately fit these truths 
into a rationally consistent and meaningful worldview, because his denial of God necessarily cuts him off from the one interpretive principle which is able to provide a rational foundation for such a worldview, viz. the creation of the whole cosmos ex nihilo by the God of Scripture. The Christian, however, though he is capable of error in his understanding of some of the facts before him, is, nonetheless, able to arrive at a correct understanding of the nature and meaning of reality as a whole. His worldview is, in principle, consistent with itself and with the world around him. Application of the Christian theory of knowledge to the philosophy of education. The sola scriptura principle implies that the whole of life must be subjected to the will of God as revealed in the scriptures. And, at least in theory, those who hold to it have always maintained that this is so. When we come to the practical application of this principle, it becomes clear that the implications of the epistemology upon which it rests are far-reaching. Nowhere is this more true today, and in more urgent need of our attention, than in the field of the philosophy of education. Generally speaking, though perhaps with the exception of religious knowledge, the non-believer will teach the same subjects and the same facts that the Christian teaches, but he will attempt to fit them into a view of reality which denies the existence of the God of Scripture and which seeks to explain all things in terms of that worldview. In such a perspective, the Christian faith is merely the product of an outmoded and unscientific worldview, and thus an irrational belief system in today's scientific age. But the Christian faith is irrational in the eyes of the non-believer because it is opposed to his own religious presuppositions about the nature of reality. For the Christian, the situation is exactly the reverse. The Christian's understanding of life is God-centered, and therefore he seeks to understand and interpret all things in terms of the creative purpose of the God of Scripture and the word he has given to govern man's life. Because he is the creator and sustainer of all things, the universe finds its purpose and meaning only in him. Thus, the denial of God is a leap into irrationality and intellectual suicide. This sets the issue of education in its philosophical context. These two positions are mutually exclusive. They can never agree fundamentally on the interpretation of the facts of reality at any point, if they are consistent with their presuppositions. For the Christian and the humanist, therefore, there can be no common ground. This truth has been understood more by the humanists heretofore than it has by Christians. It is the mutual exclusiveness of these two positions which makes the provision of a specifically Christian education for our children essential, and the sending of our children to state schools to be educated by humanists, a denial of the faith implicitly. This truth that it is the nature of our basic religious presuppositions which govern our understanding of all things is thus the fundamental rationale behind a specifically Christian philosophy and practice of education. Since, if it is true, that the only valid interpretation of the world in which we live is that which is based on God's revealed word, then the education we give our children must be based on that word at all points. A Christian education, therefore, is one which enables the student to think God's thoughts after him in every discipline and area of life, 
in other words, one which provides him with both a conceptual framework based on and consistent with the definitive interpretation of reality set forth in God's word and the intellectual tools to assimilate the data of reality into that framework. Only such an education will enable the student to make ultimate sense of the world in which he lives and equip him to fulfil his cultural mandate to bring all things into subjection to Christ. Furthermore, because the Christian believes that all things were created by God and therefore that the facts of reality can only be understood properly in terms of God's creative purpose, the Christian philosophy of education emphatically denies that any discipline or field of study or any any scientific method or the findings and conclusions of the investigation of any and every facet of the cosmos can be neutral with regard to the fundamental presuppositions of the epistemology on which it is based. It is God's creative act which gives meaning to the data of reality, and thus the only theory that can speak with authority about or make ultimate sense of this data is that which presupposes the God of Scripture as the fundamental principle of interpretation of all things. For from him, and through him, and to him are all things, Romans 11.36, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, Colossians 1.17. This truth is the beginning of all knowledge, for only in terms of this truth is true knowledge possible. Thus, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It is thus treason against God to hand our children over to non-believers for the formation of their intellectual outlook and philosophy of life, for that is what the child is given in school, viz. a total worldview, not simply specialised or technical information on certain subjects which their parents are unable to provide. Indeed, a complete philosophy of life is precisely what most educators pride themselves on providing. Anyone who supposes that he can maintain control over the kind of worldview that his children imbibe while sending them to a state or humanist school is deluded. It is impossible to undo five days of systematic instruction in the humanist worldview with one morning of Sunday school, which is usually all that the children of Christians get by way of a specifically Christian education, and even this is usually of a very poor quality and limited to religious education in the narrow sense. We are denying the faith when we hand our children over to be educated by our enemies, to be instructed and encouraged to view the world and all things in it in terms of the godless categories of human thought. To do so is to dedicate our children to another god. It is idolatry and treason all rolled into one. Conclusion I began this chapter by claiming that modern Protestant theology has abandoned the sola scriptura basis upon which it was on which it was originally founded, and that this has happened because the epistemological basis upon which it rested has been abandoned. This has not been done self-consciously, however, and this is because, by and large, the epistemological basis of the sola scriptura conception of theology was not held self-consciously by those who adhered to the sola scriptura principle. It was assumed theologically, but not self-consciously. Hence, Van Til criticises those who held to the 
sola scriptura principle, but who nevertheless attempted to construct an apologetics which was based on a common ground rationalistic epistemology. This, according to Van Til, gives too much away. Indeed, it surrenders all in principle to the enemy. With the rise of rationalistic humanism and its claim to scientific method, etc., many have concluded that the gospel is no longer intellectually defensible, at least the kind of gospel held by the reformers, with their belief in the scriptures as the infallible word of the living God. The faith, the Protestant church, including the evangelical wing, has broken ranks and fled before an enemy whose strength lies only in an illusion of rationality. Some, embarrassed by the claims of scripture and unwilling to sacrifice intellectual respectability in an academic world hostile to biblical truth, have frantically sought to find ways of showing that the scriptures really mean all along what today's scientific rationalists are saying. Witness the gap theory of creation and the idea of theistic evolution which was developed to fit in with a theory which is not only unbiblical, but untenable in terms of any proper conception of the scientific method. In this process of accommodation, however, Protestant theology has ceased to be essentially scriptural in any honest and meaningful sense, and has moved towards a form of natural theology, which is more acceptable in the contemporary intellectual and academic climate. Others, wishing to claim adherence to biblical faith and unwilling to adopt a rationalistic theology, have escaped unwittingly into the very cage that the rationalists have built for them. Viz a faith-reason dichotomy between the Christian religion and so-called scientific or empirical truth. Both of these trends are the result of giving too much credence to the illegitimate claims of rationalistic philosophy. In short, the Protestant Church today is suffering a severe attack of intellectual cowardice in the face of the enemy. If the church is to recover from this condition and reclaim its lost ground, it must throw off its intellectual bondage to the rationalistic perspective of modern philosophy and theology, and return again to the sola scriptura conception of the Christian faith. Our task, then, is to rebuild a consistent theology in terms of that principle and develop a hermeneutic which is capable of applying scripture to the contemporary world. Thus, releasing the command word of God into the life of the church and into the world we have been commissioned to bring under the discipline of Christ. If we are to communicate biblical truth effectively, however, our apologetics must be based on an epistemology which is rationally consistent with itself and with our understanding of Scripture as the infallible and authoritative revelation of God and of his will for man. On such a basis, we can confidently challenge all the rationalistic philosophy and systems of thought arrayed against the Christian religion in our day. In so doing, however, we must make it clear that the Christian epistemology on which we build is not merely a rational foundation for the truth we proclaim. It is the only rational foundation for any claim to truth. It is the basis not only of scriptural truth, but of all truth, whether religious or scientifically conceived, for the claims of biblical truth are all embracing. Only on the basis of such an epistemology are we in a position to reveal the intellectual idolatry of disbelief and expose to the non-believer the irrationality of his own position. 
The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.